When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to a Score North podcast right now, and if you're a business owner, so are your customers. In fact, I could be talking about your business right now, telling the tens of thousands of loyal fans about you and sending them to your business. Find out how you can partner with your favorite Score North podcast. Visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Fill out the form, and we'll get in touch with you quickly. Once Phil, Judd, Declan, or others start talking about your company, you'll be amazed at how many fans start showing up. So visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. It's Purple Daily. It's a second and 29 for the Buccaneers. Ball on their own 31. And a flag on a play as Chris Dolman wraps up Steve DeBerg. The Vikings have it. He's coming from the outside, number 56. Real good speed, a speed rusher. Oh, another sad day in this world. Um, Purple Daily here, Matthew Collar, Manny Hill, who I wanted to be in for the first hour here because, Manny, I feel like you are just the perfect person to talk with me about Chris Dolman. Yeah. Um, Chris Dolman passing away. Um, at age 58, he had battled brain cancer for two years and super sad because I just saw the other day he tweeted that it had been two years since he had beaten cancer, but obviously cancer just doesn't disappear and he was um, still battling it and yeah. eventually, uh, unfortunately, lost that battle and the Hall of Fame announced very late last night. So here's me. Sitting there watching TNT, where you have Derek Fisher and Rick Fox and Kenny Smith, Charles Barkley, Ernie Johnson, Jerry West, and Jerry West and Candace Parker, and I, I was watching the whole thing, and yeah. it was just heartbreaking, but also in, in a way cathartic because these people were so close to him and had so many uh, great stories. And at one point, Derek Fisher said, "This is the first time I've smiled like since that happened." Is here yeah. talking with you guys, and Shaq was so eloquent last night. So I'm watching that. And you're just getting gut-punched over and over again. But the stories are so good that I couldn't stop watching. And, of course, as I will do, I'm just, you know, sitting with the dog and writing an article and refreshing Twitter. And I see that the Hall of Fame announced that Chris Dolman passed away, which just, okay, could this the week get any worse, basically? Yeah. And Dolman, one of the great players in NFL history, a Hall of Famer in 2012, 150.5 sacks. And spent from 1985 until 1993 with the Minnesota Vikings. So right in the time, Manny, where you and I were becoming big football fans and goes to some Atlanta defenses were great. And I forgot that he came back as a 38-year-old in 1999 to the Mm -hmm. Vikings and still had eight sacks. And it took a little while for him to get in the Hall of Fame wrongly. 
because I think he he had the one great year and then was just so consistently great for a long time and was not a big self-promoter or anything like that, you sort of forgot how consistently excellent that Chris Dolman was. He was incredible, and the thing that I keep hearing now, I, I heard it from Judd this morning, uh, we had superstar Mike Morris on Score North Live at, at 12.30 earlier today, and the the common thought of Chris Doman was that he was very businesslike. Mm-hmm. You know, he he was very aware of of how good he was and the numbers that he was putting up. But he showed up ready to work, and he was very dedicated to his craft. And I just remember, you know, I personally from like watching him live. I remember him more from when he was with Atlanta and then yeah. San Francisco. Yep. His run in San Francisco. Yep. Um. Because when he was with the Vikings, it was sort of before I started really like following football and getting really into the NFL and following the following the Vikings religiously. But to watch him collar in San Francisco in his mid to late thirties and still be a dominant pass yes. rusher, it was just was just incredible. And and when you think about this game of football and guys that don't, how many guys do we see just sort of start to? Decline once they get to be about 31, oh, yeah. 32, 33 years old. Eleven sacks at age thirty-five. Yeah, I mean it's it's just it's just off the charts. And I think to your point about how long it took him to get in the Hall of Fame. When I think when you factor in how dominant a player he was, even into his late thirties, it is pretty astonishing that it took him as long as it did to get into the Hall of Fame. Right, because he would have been right up there when he retired at among the all-timers, among yeah. Bruce Smith and Reggie White, like right there in that ballpark for sacks, which is not the entire way that a player should be graded, but it's certainly up there for that position. If you're a pass rusher, how many sacks you get is the biggest deal, and 150 and a half mm-hmm. over so many years was just uh, Hall of Fame worthy, and it shouldn't have taken him that long to get in, but that seems to be the theme for the Hall of Fame. Uh, Deion Sanders is um, one of my favorite athletes of all time, mm-hmm. but him saying that there are too many players getting into the football hall of fame it's like i could not disagree with anything more there's a lot of offensive linemen who get left out there's a lot of wide receivers who are getting left out who have really really good cases yeah. because we don't put enough people in the hall of fame i think that more guys need to go in so someone like chris dolman doesn't have to sit for year after year wondering if he's going to get in when he has 150 sacks uh that defensive line for the San Francisco 49ers, 1996, Chris Dolman, Roy Barker, and Bryant Young, 12 and a half, 11 and a half, and 11 sacks. So he had the least sacks on that defensive line. And what I liked about Chris Dolman, because I feel the same way, that as a Viking, I don't remember him as much. I don't remember the 21-sack season because I was three. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that was really something to see. And he that also caused five fumbles that year, so he was really about as, as dominant as it gets. And didn't win Defensive Player of the Year because Keith Millard, <laughs> his line mate, had like 18 That's, sacks as an interior defensive yeah. pass rusher and was amazing, and he ended up getting Defensive Player of the Year that year. Man, it's always the story of the Vikings. They have a great defensive line and get very close to winning, but don't do it. <laughs> it's yes. just always. He was all pro that year. He was all pro in 1992, so I don't remember those years. But with Atlanta and San Francisco, I thought of him as sort of the earliest 
player on the defensive line that you would call like a technician because a lot of the guys who were superstars in that era were just more freakishly athletic than anybody else. And Reggie White, and I'm sure he was a technician, and the same with Bruce Smith too, but those guys were freakishly large. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bruce Smith was a 3-4 defensive end who was 290 pounds but had like the lightest feet Ever. And he was so strong and so quick. And then Reggie White, he would just throw the club at you. Mm-hmm. And there's that famous clip of Reggie White knocking uh, Larry Allen off his spot. I mean, Larry Allen, like one of the strongest players of all time. So those guys with just their overpowering size and strength, where Chris Dolman did not exactly have the size. He came into the league as an outside linebacker. He might have... He might have gone close to 290, but at 6'5", he was not like that that compact, powerful guy. And he just seemed to be one of those technicians where he mm-hmm. had all sorts of moves and counter moves and things like that. And somebody that was never a self-promoter, was never a huge, I don't, I don't think, um, was a huge like sack dance guy or want like look at me type of person. Right. And very business like. You have to respect that for somebody who played for such a long time and had every right to be that way. And I wouldn't criticize him if he was, but I love the way that Chris Dolman went about his business. Yeah, it was it was great. And Judd talked about this earlier about how, you know, he had his first run here he, you know, he had sort of a strained relationship with the media, I think, because he wasn't that sort of that huge, outgoing, brash yeah. personality. And, and so he didn't really have a great relationship with the media. But Judd talked about how when he came back in 99, it was very different. He was hmm. obviously towards the end of his career and he had already accomplished so much. And it, he was much more open and much more friendly and, and, and had a much better relationship with, certainly with, with, with the public and the media and everything. And, and I think that sort of speaks to what we talked about with like Kobe Bryant earlier this week about just guys that have that, they have this sort of personality about them that you don't really know a whole lot about them or they don't really let you in, but they have this drive to, for excellence and yeah. perfection and and dominating what they do on a on a daily basis and then once they get older you know they sort of grow and they mature and they and they sort of look back on opportunities that they now have to sort of help younger players and and be more ambassadors for for their sport and what they do and and it's pretty remarkable how you know a guy like Kobe Bryant and a guy like Chris Dolman who do two completely different things, play two completely different sports, sort of follow that same, a very similar path from when they were in their early 20s or in the case of Kobe, I guess, 17 years old when they first started playing professionally towards the end of their careers. Um, Chris Dolman, fifth all-time in sacks. The only guys in NFL history ahead of him, which, of course, is starting in, uh, what is it, 84 when they started to keep track of sacks? 83 or 84. 83, 84. Um, So since then... Bruce Smith, Reggie White, Kevin Green, Julius Peppers, that's it. Mm. I mean, right ahead of Michael Strahan, Jason Taylor, Terrell Suggs, DeMarcus Ware, Richard Dent, John Randall. I mean, those are the guys he's ahead, and and Jared Allen, obviously, as well. So one of the all-time great NFL players, very sad, 58 years old, and he had battled cancer for two years. And I saw Chris Thompson of the Pioneer Press, who had talked to him a few times in the last couple years, um, he had to wear for a time a helmet after having brain surgery, 
and the Vikings gave him some stickers to put on the side of it, the Vikings helmet stickers. Mm. And Chris tweeted that uh, Dolman would wear it even though he didn't have to anymore. Even after he had healed, he was proud to have his Vikings helmet on. So I I really appreciate that story. So uh, another gut punch in a very unfortunate and difficult week for everybody after uh, Kobe Bryant passed away earlier this week. So that is life, I guess. Uh, Manny, I I, I want you to stay for the entire hour because I've got some other things to talk about. And you love the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. It's like one of your things. Like You (laughs) love to talk about Super Bowls. So I I want to just move forward here as the you know 49ers and Chiefs are getting ready to play and I'm getting that feeling where all right some of the pomp and circumstance is sort of cooling down and we're really starting to get focused closer to the game and I want to know what you think because you know all the Super Bowls in and out <laughs> I want to know what you think makes a great Super Bowl because last year there was a huge debate over whether the Rams and Patriots was actually good or not. <laughs> and, and I tended to lean toward a mm, bit of a snooze fest. Yep. I thought the defenses were good, but a lot of the Rams' failures were of their own, and the interception that uh, Goff throws is more of a pass interference or bad throw than it is a great play. And, you know, you just felt like the lack of execution for both offenses made it extremely dull. But I want to know your opinion on what you think is sort of the outline for an an all-time great Super Bowl. I think if you can get the combination of great names, specifically at the quarterback position, I I think which we have at least... You mean Kerry Collins, Trent Dilfer wasn't one of your favorites? Goodness gracious. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, because I think that, you know, that's it's a great example of... You look at that game, and that game was a snooze fest. Yeah. The Ravens and Giants, Super Bowl thirty-five. Yep. It was it was an awfully played football game, and certainly you appreciate the greatness of that Ravens defense and one of the greatest defenses of all time. And their performance that day was excellent, but it was just it was a snooze fest. And last I look at last year's Super Bowl as kind of the same sort of thing. So I, I think you need to have certainly you need to have star power. I think you need to have great storylines. And you just need to have a, a, a great football game where you feel like both teams are sort of evenly matched and something crazy sort of happens that maybe changes the course of the game. And I think when you get that sort of a thing, I think that really makes for, for a great Super Bowl. I just, the ones that I can't stand are the ones that are A, they're blowouts. Those are the worst ones. Of course. Yeah. And B, when you get a quarterback matchup that is just, I don't mind the lopsided ones because Steve as long Young, as Stan Humphreys, though, I mean, yeah, but, that's the worst Super Bowl of my life. I think sure, is, is yeah. our favorite season, nineteen ninety four. The season is great, <laughs> but the final game is so bad. Yeah. It's just over from the very second it starts. No one cares about Stan Humphreys. Yeah. By the end of the game, they're like throwing passes to Deion Sanders because they <laughs> do not care. It's just so over. And I yeah. think that Steve Young is not even playing at the end. That they've put in I think they, whoever is back. I think was, it was Elvis Gerback. Was Gerback. Yeah. I think it was Gerback. Yeah. That that is the very definition of a bad Super. <laughs> I think a bad Super Bowl is one of those, um, like the famous definition, you know it when you see it with a bad Super Bowl. But with a good Super Bowl, there are close ones 
that weren't that good mm-hmm. throughout the game, but sort of became close. A good example of that would be the Cardinals and Steelers, sure. which I didn't think was a particularly great Super Bowl, and the Steelers really controlled the game for most of it, and mm-hmm. then it just became really interesting at the very end. You might say that for the one that our friend Alex Boone played in, Baltimore and San Francisco. Yeah. The lights going out is memorable, so you have like random stuff that you're talking about that's mm-hmm. memorable. Most of that game is dominated, though. The Ravens get way ahead. San Francisco comes back. And then the ending is great. So there's a differentiation, in my mind, from a great Super Bowl to just a Super Bowl that had a great ending. Yeah, and and I think the ones that really stand out to me that were just great, I think, throughout. And we don't even necessarily have to be talking about high-scoring Super Bowls here either. I think when you factor in... What was on the line? Like, I think about the first Giants-Patriots Super Bowl, Super Bowl 42 in, in Arizona. You know, that final score of that game was 17-14. to 14. So it wasn't a very, I think it was 7-3 to three Patriots at the half. So mm-hmm. it wasn't a high-scoring game. Yeah. But I think when you factor in what was on the line, the Patriots trying to make history, the Giants being this underdog team that had won a bunch of road games to get yeah. there. Yep. And... Then you get the crazy play with the the Tyree catch and Eli escaping the sack, which I don't think Eli gets enough credit for on that play, by the way. Everybody talks about Tyree trapping the ball in his helmet, which was a great play, but Eli escaping the yes. sack yeah. before that to even make that throw. I will not turbo snark about making plays off schedule. I'll just let you continue. <laughs> I was kind of hoping you would. I, I'm just, um, I, there are, will be a whole summer for that, but go on. <laughs> but, but I think that game... Considering what was on the line, and it is by far one of the biggest upsets in Super Bowl, not not just Super Bowl, just in sports history, with what was on the line and Plexico Burris making that catch uh, to win the game. And, you know, I, I think games like that are, are the ones that, that truly stand out to me. And, I, you know, and there's other ones that don't. I don't think come down to the wire, but I also thought were very entertaining and very great. And, you know, the, the, how do I word it with this one? Because the, the Steelers Cowboys Super Bowl in Arizona, the onside kick one. Yeah. But that's how I kind of remember it is right. That Cower came out with an onside kick and they got it. And that sort of made you believe that there was a chance right. Pittsburgh could pull it and off. And then, and then like you're, you're, cause I was, Totally in on the Steelers winning that because I like Bill Cower and Flash, man. Yeah, Cordell Stewart yep. and Bam Morris was the big, powerful running back yep. that the Steelers had. Um, and then, you know, Neil O'Donnell, which I'm forever bitter at him for throwing the exact same identical interception twice to Larry Brown. Um, but that was one of those games where you're sort of, you feel yourself rooting for the Steelers who were just overmatched by that great Cowboys team and, uh, and they end up coming up short. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just when you can find sort of a rooting interest maybe in the game. And that's why I think this game on Sunday is so intriguing because personally, I'm just rooting for the Kansas City Chiefs because I like Andy Reid so yeah. much. And I think it's good for the game if a guy like Patrick Mahomes can be at the top of the mountain and, and win championships and, and things like that. But I think if you can find a, a, a rooting interest in it, if it can turn out to be a great game, if you can get something unique to happen in that game, whether it's a crazy play or an event like the Ravens 49ers Super Bowl, I think that's 
those are all the things that make for a great game. I like when storylines develop organically during a game. Mm-hmm. So if you have, let me think of an example here. Maybe like the Super Bowl that was in Minneapolis is a, is a recent example here mm-hmm. of just this game is going to be a shootout. And the storyline that's developing is that Doug Peterson is out coaching Bill Belichick right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is actually happening. Like D- Doug Peterson and his backup quarterback here, and they run the Philly special and everything else. So they're pulling out all the stops. And we have this throughout the game. It's almost like a uh, that was a fast build. And sometimes it's a slow build where it's just cu- sort of growing and growing. And an example of the slow build would be the... Uh, Patriots and St. Louis Rams, where the slow build is the Patriots are slowing them down. Like they're actually slowing them down. Mm-hmm. Can you believe they're actually slowing them down? <laughs> and, and as it goes on and on and the game gets more tense, it's like, are, are they going to score at all? Is, is St. Louis going to be able to produce any points here? How is New England doing this? How are they pulling it off? How is this defense being so physical with the St. Louis Rams that their receivers don't seem to want to catch the football? And then you have. The moments that that pop, which is obviously John Madden saying, oh, you know, I think Brady should just kneel it down and go to overtime oh, here. Yeah. And then he leads the game winning yeah. drive and, and things like that that really pop. But I, I think there's a lot of examples. And the same thing goes for the Giants over the Patriots. 17 14 mm-hmm. is like you mentioned, it's not an exciting score. But the fact that the developing story was. Can you believe they're pressuring Brady like this? Right. They are really actually getting to him. Nobody gets to him. Right. Nobody can slow down this offense. And yet they were finding ways over and over. And we could point to a lot of different ones that were great that had all the elements, I think, that go together of the superstar power. One that we don't talk about as an all-time great Super Bowl enough is the Seahawks not running Marshawn because it's defined solely by not running Marshawn. Mm -hmm. But in that game, you have a receiver no one's ever heard of that's all of a sudden catching passes from Russell Wilson. You have Marshawn Lynch running wheel routes out of the backfield and making (laughs) crazy catches and big gains and it feeling the same way. Like The crazy Baldwin catch right before the um, Malcolm Butler interception. Yes, yes, that's right. Was it was it a one-handed, Baldwin? right? Yeah, it was, was, it, was it Baldwin yeah. or was it Jermaine Curse? Um, I'm trying to remember. I think it, it might, might have been, been Jermaine Curse, but okay. I, I don't remember. Mm. But I, I remember the one-handed catch, which yep. we would have remembered had they won. We would right. have talked about it forever. But the developing storyline throughout that one not only was, oh my gosh, Marshawn Lynch is running this game right now yep. and just dominating, but it's also that Brady had lost his last two Super Bowls. That he had lost both to the Giants, mm-hmm. and he hadn't been in one since the Giants had beaten them uh, the second time. Yep. And then, so he's got his, his next shot. And if he loses to the Seattle Seahawks there, I mean, we're kind of talking about him differently, right? Like, yeah. one of the crazy developing stories for a lot of these Super Bowls is. Boy, really, Brady could get kind of knocked off his pedestal here. He might kind of choke here. He is so close to losing four straight Super Bowls. Yeah. It's wild. I mean, Marshawn Lynch runs the ball, boom. It's, you know, you, you get one more field goal, boom. He's lost four straight Super Bowls. It's within two plays between Seattle and Atlanta. What do you think of the Atlanta blown 28 to three Super Bowl? Like, did you, did you love that one? Did you hate that one because it was excruciating watching Brady come back? I can't decide whether that's a great Super Bowl or just a crazy comeback that happened. Yeah, I I kind of view that game the same way I viewed the um the 2014 World Series with the Royals and Giants. Like I was all in on the Royals winning that series and they had the game 7 at home 
But then when Madison Bumgarner came out in Game 7 in relief and just started mowing down Royals hitters, and he had already pitched a ton That's in right, that series yeah. and in that postseason, like he was doing something historic. And so even though I was rooting for the Royals, mm-hmm. I was seeing him do something historic and was like, ooh, I'm kind of actually hoping Madison Bumgarner like yeah. finishes the job here. It was kind of that same thing with the right. Patriots. You want Atlanta Falcons, to win. I wanted Atlanta to win, but then like... When the Patriots made it, I think twenty-eight to twenty after being down twenty-eight to three, I was thinking, boy, it would be kind of cool to see the Patriots come back and win this game. And Brady, sort of just doing this and sort of willing the team back into this game. Obviously, the Falcons did them a lot of favors along the way, but when I think when you kind of get the sense that something historic was going to happen, I think sometimes your your rooting interest kind of goes out the window because right. you yeah. kind of really like to see history happen. And the way that game finished, I mean, it was it was really amazing. Before we hit the break, if I gave you the two choices to see Patrick Mahomes put on an all-time performance, I mean 530 yards, mm-hmm. six touchdowns, they demolish an amazing defense because Mahomes just does stuff that nobody else is capable of in NFL history. Or a 17-14 win for somebody, either team, but it's great. Like, it's two teams just throwing haymakers at each other for a whole game, and it comes down to the final field goal with yeah. clock expiring. Which would you rather see? Oh, that's a great question. That's why I, I think have the it, show. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think I would probably take the close score. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm a little bit biased because I like both of these teams. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm rooting for the Chiefs. I love, I love Andy Reid. I love Patrick Mahomes. But I also like Kyle Shanahan a lot, and I like Jimmy Garoppolo a lot. So if they end up winning the game, I'm totally cool with yeah. that. So I I think I would tend to lean towards just just give me a great game. Give me a great game that comes down to the wire and give me things that I can look back on the game and, and remember. Because this is, this is the ultimate chess match that we're going to see between Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes in this offense against that terrific 49ers defense. It's gonna be it's gonna be fantastic, and I think if we just get a great game, I'm I'm all for it. I think there's a really good chance for this one. There's a lot of matchups in the past where it is what you thought it was going to be. Um, certain games that were just just kills, and you go, well, yep, kind of saw that coming. I mean, um, I guess you have to go back maybe a little while for that, where you feel like it's a big mismatch. But the one I think of right offhand is when Atlanta beat a certain team in the NFC Championship because of a certain missed field goal. Mm-hmm. And the team that went, you just, I don't think they're going to beat the Broncos. And then right away, it was very clear that yep. Atlanta wasn't beating the Broncos. Yep. And it was just, all right, go do something else for a while because this is not happening. All right, we've got Super Bowl Hot Routes, which you will stick around for, Manny. Later mm-hmm. on in the show, both Sam Monson and Steve Palazzolo will join the show, uh, one at 3 and the other at 3.30. I'm not sure which, so that'll be fun <laughs> to find out. And uh, so that'll be fun. We'll break down the QB annual a little bit more. We started talking about it with George Shahuri yesterday, and I wrote four takeaways from it at scorenorth.com. So make sure you go check that out. Um, insanely detailed statistics about quarterbacks. So we're going to get the takeaways from Sam Monson and Steve Pelzolo. And, of course, they're in Miami for the Super Bowl. So we will do all that when we return. It's Purple Daily here on Score North. Hey there, it's Phil Mackey for Federated Mutual Insurance Company. And Federated is here to give business owners out there peace of mind. You pour your life and energy into a business, and the last thing you want is for something to happen that puts you on the defense. And that's where Federated comes in. 
based in Owatonna, Minnesota, over a century of experience in standing behind business owners. If you're a business owner and you want some more peace of mind, go to federatedinsurance.com to find out more about your local federated marketing representative. Federated Insurance, it's their business to protect yours. Jonathan here with the Score North download. We'll get you back to Purple Daily and some hot routes in just a moment. But first, you can join the beer show this afternoon at 30 Bales in downtown Hopkins for a live taping of the beer show from 3 to 6 p.m. Hang out for the recording. Register to win great prizes from Elevated Beer, Wine and Spirits, Dasco Labeling, and Fratelloni's Ace Hardware. That's this afternoon from 3 to 6 p.m. over at 30 Bales in downtown Hopkins. Uh, we've been talking about it all day at various points here on Score North. That's of the passing of former Minnesota Viking defensive lineman Chris Dolman. King. Good initial protection, but the secondary did its job. And then finally Chris Dolman gets the sack. And that's nothing new. He's among the all-time leaders in that department. That's his second sack of the game. Dolman in 10 seasons as a Viking notched 96 and a half sacks, finishing his career with a total of 150 and a half, which puts him fifth all time. He was an eight-time Pro Bowler and two-time All-Pro, and in 2012 was elected into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He passed away last night after a battle with cancer at the age of 58. That's been your Score North download. Now back to Purple Daily. Caller has questions. Blue 58! Blue 58! Go! And he wants your answers. Street! Red, red, red! Red Polly! Blue Poncho! In rapid fire fashion. Gun flex right stack. 394 Dragon Smoke. It's Hot Routes on Purple Daily. 580! 397! All right, it is Hot Routes. You already heard Manny's voice, and he is also here for Hot Routes. Jonathan as well. So as we do, uh, I have taken five different questions for you guys based on the Super Bowl, but not entirely. Just some are news stories in relation to the Super Bowl and uh, the two squads that will be competing for supremacy. So uh, let's uh, ramp it up, Jonathan, the NFL music, and we will get it going here. Our first hot route of the day is near and dear to my heart. These two franchises are just great. Mm -hmm. I mean, great. From whether it's the Chiefs of the 60s and Len Dawson throwing in slow motion with John Facenda talking about it, or if it's you know the, the all the ex-49ers quarterbacks who became Chiefs quarterbacks, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where I want to start. Because the NFL tweeted out video highlights of the 94 matchup between Kansas City and San Francisco, which, I mean, I just, you Montana know. Montana versus Young, man, I remember it. Just so much joy. And, yeah, Montana versus his old team at Arrowhead Stadium. So many unbelievably good players a part of those two teams. So I want you guys to give me your five favorite Chief or 49er players that are not Joe Montana or Steve Young. You could pick other quarterbacks if you like, but don't pick Montana and Young. It's too obvious. Who are your five other favorites? Let me go first. Go ahead. Uh, number one for me was Derek Thomas. May he rest in peace, obviously. Just a great, I mean... Much like Chris Dolman, just a dominant pass rusher. And just, I think, what was the game he had? Uh, I think it was, was it six sacks or eight sacks he had in the game? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he was just, he was just a monster as a, as a pass rushing outside linebacker, defensive end, sort of hybrid type of player. And just the quickest off the snap in NFL history, maybe. Yep. Just, just an amazing player. Number two, Ken Norton Jr. 
Oh, great pick. Yeah. Great pick. He, uh, Rock solid linebacker. Yes, yes, indeed. And uh, defensive coordinator, I think, for Seattle this year with, with Pete Carroll, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he's been around for a long time as a coach, too. Yeah. Um, just a great linebacker, great personality, and uh, son of the boxer, obviously, and, and um, just... Great, great player, and won a super, won a couple Super Bowls with the Cowboys, and then won one with San Francisco in that uh, in that Chargers. He's game. one of those players. Where as soon as you say his name, you can envision Ken Norton Jr. Like yep. you just see his image of like the. I think he had a neck roll, and it mm-hmm. just he had this like classic middle linebacker. If you had no number on the guy and no name, you'd be like, "That's Ken Norton Jr. and that is a middle linebacker." If I have ever seen one in my life. Yep, uh, number three. Alex Boone's guy, Frank Gore. Man. Frank Gore. Yeah. Frank Gore is. I. I just. I love the fact that he has been able to stick around the NFL for this long at that position when so many guys are out of the league after even some of the great running backs we've seen in the last twenty years. Mm-hmm. They're usually out of the league sometimes by eight or after eight or nine years. And Frank Gore has stood the test of time in the last fifteen years, and now he's third all time in rushing. He's just. Just an amazing, amazing player. Someone's going to have him still playing football next year, I think. Yep, yep. Uh, number four, Roger Craig. Thousand and thousand. Yeah, absolutely. Dual threat back. One of the really one of the first ones that that was pretty well known, I think, in the eighties with the Forty ers yeah. and also had a cup of coffee with the Vikings Viking. in the early nineties as well. Are there things that come up in the NFL now with like the analytics era and everything else where you feel totally justified about your takes as a child? Like, loving Roger Craig would be one of them. And the dual threat running back. Yep. Me thinking that David Palmer and Amp Lee were underrated, kind of awesome players. Yep. In today's game, Amp Lee is great. Yes. Right? He's, 100%. he's maybe not quite Christian McCaffrey, but he's catching passes and he's you know, averaging four and a half, five yards a carry. Those guys were sneaky valuable in that era. And these two teams had a lot of them. Those guys who could do anything, catch passes out of the backfield. Your Garrison Hurst or Ricky Waters or, you know, the there's a the one that on uh, is on my list that I don't want to mention. But like even like Kimball Anders, yeah. remember him? He would yep. catch passes out of the backfield. Just I I love that about the 49ers and Bill Walsh that they figured out that those were high efficiency plays and you should do it all the time. And uh, number five, really, really underrated special teamer, and was really was was phenomenal, but only for about probably about a three year stretch. Dante Hall, oh, you took my last one. Dante Hall, man, <laughs> was unbelievable kick returner yeah. for about a three year stretch. Was never a great wide receiver per se. This is what He's I untouchable love for three or four years. We yeah. only, we only have one match. You and I only have one match, which is great. This yeah. is this is why I absolutely love this with these two franchises because there's so many players that you can appreciate throughout their recent history. Jonathan, yeah. your list. Uh Manny and I match up on quite a few of these. The only one he didn't have that I that I have is Deion Sanders. I loved yep. the fact that you couldn't throw to one side of the field. And see, and, Deion, honestly, Deion is one of my favorites too, but I know I knew Collar would have it on yes, his list, and I yes. figured you probably would too. He so couldn't throw to one off. side of the field. And I also like the dual sport athlete. I just, yeah. mm-hmm. I wish that we still had those. I know it's almost impossible to the do 30 it. 30 for 30 on days. him is great. Yeah. It's amazing the dedication that he was able to put into both sports and be pretty good at both of them and legendary at one of them. Uh, Jerry Rice, easy one here. Mm-hmm. Loved. Love Jerry Rice, best wide receiver of all time, considered the GOAT in all of football, which with Tom Brady kind of maybe creeping up there. I don't know if you guys agree with that or not. Uh, Frank Gore, just because in the day and age that we live in where running backs 
don't last very long. They last four or five years at most. He's been there for over a decade doing that at that tough of a position and still being useful. Derek Thomas and Dante Hall round out my list. Good picks. Um, The all-time greatest player, I think you just have to separate it. You have to say all-time great quarterbacks is a conversation, and then all-time great not quarterbacks is a conversation. (laughs) And then you you just have guys who are in a certain air, and that's the way I look at it is there is is way up here, and that's Jerry Rice, Mm -hmm. and that's Walter Payton, and it's Reggie White, and there's maybe five other people all-time, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And then it's sort of that next notch below. And Randy Moss is one of the hardest to figure out where you should put him, because I put him in the Reggie White, Walter Payton, and I I put Randy Moss there. Mm -hmm. But there's always that, ah, what if he tried a little harder sometimes in Oakland? You know, there's always that. But it's like, look at how great he was, even though he wasn't trying all the time. But I wonder, I always wonder if I can really put that guy in the Reggie White air, if I have to ask the question, what if he had tried a little harder sometimes? Right. You know what I mean? That's, That's the debate I have with Randy Moss. But... Aside from that, Randy Moss, number one greatest 49er of all time. Everyone knows it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Poor Randy Moss did not win a Super Bowl. He was on that team. I think he had like one catch in the Super Bowl. Uh, Marcus Allen is where it starts for me, and I will tell you why. I debated between Marcus Allen and Christian Okoye, but Christian Mm. Okoye was more of just a tech mobile video game love. Uh, Marcus Allen, what I really, really appreciate about him is that for some reason, Al Davis hated him. Al Davis got mad at him because Marcus Allen was a bigger star in Oakland than Al Davis was. And so he decided to make him the fullback. Can you imagine this happening today of taking like one of the biggest superstars in the game and being like, nah, you're going to wear the neck roll now. He did it. Him and Bo Jackson were dominant. They were incredible. It's one of the great backfields in history. And then he just phases out Marcus. And that could have been the end of Marcus Allen's career. And he goes in his 30s to the Chiefs and is just great mm-hmm. catching passes, diving over the goal line. And, and I loved the dual threat running back. So watching old-ass Marcus, Marcus Allen still dominate in KC, mm-hmm. catching checkdowns from Joe Montana was like, what's happening right now? <laughs> How is Joe Montana throwing checkdowns to Marcus Allen, two guys that just don't belong in this franchise? Uh, Deion Sanders, number two, yeah. is as exciting as a player that you get. The only argument against putting him on the list would be that you might think of him more as a cowboy. Yeah. But, I wish I wish he would have played in San Francisco longer. I know there was contract stuff and everything and cow, the Cowboys, the bright lights of being on Jerry Jones's team and everything was appealing, but I wish I cuz I'm with you that 94 season, that Niners team was so much fun. Derek Holmes is an obvious so I'm sorry, uh Derek Thomas. Mm-hmm. Derek Holmes randomly is a former Bills running back, but I just read my next one, Priest Holmes is also on the list. Priest Holmes is the most underrated running back in the history of the NFL. Mm -hmm. When you look at his statistics compared to the great running backs in history, he is in large part better. I mean, he's he's a guy who's averaging 4.6 yards a carry. He would catch 62, 70, 74 passes. He scored 27 rushing touchdowns in a season once. Yep, And that is bananas. Uh, one of the great peaks in history is Priest Holmes, three-time All-Pro, three-time Pro Bowler. He was great. Uh, I loved watching him play because, again, the dual threat. But also, he reminds me of Delvin in some ways. Like, Priest Holmes. Super quick, but will also run over you. Mm-hmm. And is sort of that same kind of size where he is not gigantic. He's a little shorter than Delvin. But that 
like compound guy who you think, well, he's not that tall. He's not going to run me over. And then, yes, he will run you over. I loved his toughness. And Merton Hanks. Oh, yes. Merton Hanks, the playmaking yeah. safety with a neck made of rubber. See, I was going to actually put him on my list. And then because you sent me the, the notes for this and I saw him on your list, so I wasn't going to include him on mine. But yes, the when he'd get a, he'd get a pick six or a scoop and score and then he'd, he'd do his he'd do like the head jerk thing yes. on his way to yes. the end zone. Merton Hanks was fantastic. And while we're appreciating Mamba mentality players, Ronnie Lott, I, I yep. mean, he was sort of a, an extra add in here. Not a guy that I saw as much of because of when he played, but you know, one of the all-time great players. And you could go on and on with these two teams. So yep. uh, on to our next hot route. Uh, one thing that makes Patrick Mahomes and Jimmy G similar is that they both landed with amazing offensive coaches that got the most out of their skill sets. So I want you guys to tell me, is there any team in the NFL where you think either Mahomes or Jimmy G, if they have gone to, that they definitely would have failed? Like even Patrick Mahomes or even Jimmy Garoppolo with all their talent would not have succeeded if they went to team blank. And I want you to give me other teams that it would have been just as awesome if they had gone to? Well, I think a bad team for Patrick Mahomes to go to, I think, would have been the Miami Dolphins because I just... That's any quarterback, though. Yeah, I mean, that's just... It, it's yeah. They've just not, not been Jay able Fiedler. to... <laughs> <laughs> he won a lot of games for them. Okay, Chad Pennington, they went 11-5 and five with Chad Pennington once. I know that. Um, yeah, I, I just feel like with where they're at as a franchise right now, that could have been the worst possible place for Patrick Mahomes to go. And then with Jimmy Garoppolo, a team that I think would have been interesting to see him at, what if Bill Belichick had been able to do what he wanted to do? Turn it over to Jimmy G. And turned it and moved on from Tom Brady and kept Jimmy Garoppolo. Where would the Patriots be at right now? I think they probably lose the Super Bowl to Philly, and they probably win the Super Bowl last year. I mean, they gave up three points last year, so anyone is winning that. But that would have been fascinating to be like, huh, someone not Brady won a Super Bowl with Belichick. Was Brady that good? We would have been doing that. That would have been all over your TV. Mm -hmm. One dude and another dude screaming at the top of their lungs, (laughs) Tom Brady was overrated because Jimmy G won. (laughs) Like That would have been a bleep show. I'm glad it didn't happen. It's, I think it's a great answer, but I'm so happy that it didn't happen. Uh, Jonathan? I think a team that would have been fun to see Mahomes on is the other team in the Super Bowl, San Francisco. Yeah. See how creative Kyle Shanahan would have been with Patrick Mahomes as his quarterback. Have all that talent at his disposal on the offense. Have that running game for him. That would have been amazing to see what he could have done with Patrick Mahomes. For Jimmy G, Tampa Bay with Bruce Arians as his head coach. You have mm. those weapons on offense. Mike Evans, everybody else they have as wide receivers. And see Bruce Arians just let Jimmy G just chuck it. Throw it up, right. Yeah. Throw it up to those receivers. Uh, is there a team that either one would have gone to that you think that they would have just failed? Uh, probably the Lions. If Matthew Stafford decides to retire and then one of those two take over. I don't think with Matt Patricia they're doing anything. I think you're right. I think anyone could go to the Lions and fail, which we'll get to later. There's more on that. (laughs) I'm going to say the one team that could have screwed it up. None of us have said the Browns. I mean, the Browns could definitely mess it up. But also the Jets. We just do not give the Jets proper credit for being one of the worst franchises in NFL history. It's like, well, you know, Namath won that one Super Bowl, so I guess they're kind of good. But, like, they're not. They're constantly a mess throughout their entire history. Rex Ryan brought them up for, like, four years, and then they became 
a mess once right. again. They, they have Rex. the longest drought right now, right? Of Super Bowl appearances, I think. Wow. The Jets do, if I'm not mistaken. Amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, and Adam Gase definitely could have messed up either one of these quarterbacks. <laughs> Who I would have loved to have seen them play with? The Minnesota Vikings for yeah. Pat Mahomes. Yeah. I mean, how, how do yeah. we not say this? <laughs> Delvin Cook and Stephon Diggs. Can you imagine someone actually throwing it to Diggs when he's open? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, how about the going back and watching that San Francisco tape? There were so many chances to throw the ball to Stephon Diggs. There's one where Richard Sherman just falls down because Diggs smokes him so bad. Ball doesn't come because Kirk Cousins didn't throw it. And because he can't escape at all. So we would have seen yeah. the homes escaping and making plays and throwing downfield. How about two good tight ends, Irv Smith, Kyle Rudolph, checkdowns to Delvin, screens to Delvin. He's throwing his screens to Damian Williams. Who the hell is that? I've never even heard of that guy. What if, what if Rick had not pulled off the trade for Sam Bradford, given up that first-round pick when Trade Teddy up got from hurt, and then the next year... You know the Vikings probably go with Sean Hill. Probably oh, go. They what, would have gone like six and ten. Six and ten. Sean Hill wouldn't make it past week four. Right. Like at that point in his career, no way. So they would have been playing like Taylor Heineke or something. Yeah, and so they would have been in perfect position to take Patrick Mahomes. I'll, I'll never blame them for trying to go for it with Bradford. Right. Bradford percent agree. He, he was a good Viking quarterback. Yep. And you yep. can't say that it was his fault that they didn't win in 2016 entirely, but. It's a great question. Tanking works, man. Tanking is the thing. It's so great. It just works. Uh, so, I, I mean, hard not to say that. that yeah. The Vikings with Mahomes would have been fascinating. With Jimmy G, I would have loved to see it just to know like what the difference is between Cousins and Jimmy G. I think there is one. They put, get put in the same category, but I think Jimmy's got more baller to him. Yep. So I would have loved to see if he could have won that playoff game. And when you look at Jimmy G this year, it's a little bit of a going aside, and I know we're running out of time in the segment, but he played really well in his big games, mm-hmm. and the quarterback here in the Twin Cities did not. Um, speaking of LOL Lions, Richard Sherman said he wanted nothing to do with rip-off versions of the Patriot way, which just, congratulations, Richard yep. Sherman. <laughs> He's I, a smart guy, man. You just have to love when an athlete's like, yeah, I'm not even going to sugarcoat this. I was not playing for some joker who came from Belichick. <laughs> it's so fantastic. That's why he signed with the 49ers. Do you guys think that the Lions will ever reach a Super Bowl? Ever? No. Not unless Jeff Bezos buys them and buys them a Super Bowl to go with it. I think it's going to take a change in ownership, probably. Mm-hmm. It's certainly, it's probably not going to happen under this current quarterback. And I and I actually like Matthew Stafford, but I just don't think it's ever going to happen under this current setup within the next five or six years. No. I don't think that Stafford can get you there. Right. And then who's next? It is usually entirely about the quarterback. And the reality of Matt Stafford is it just can't always not be his fault. It's sort of the conversation we have with the basketball team here. It's like years and years of blaming everybody else except for the star player. You know, at some point you have to look at the star player and say, Matt Stafford is probably a 9-7 and type quarterback. And then when you're really bad, he's really bad. And when you're really good, he's still not good enough. Mm Is probably the reality of him. I'm going to say that they... I mean, ever in the history of eternity, probably sometime, but it's not going to be anytime soon because we know how this goes. Like next year, they go nine and seven, and then everyone's like, see, Patricia turned him around. Look at how good. And then the year after that, they go seven and nine again. They fire Patricia, and we start all over again. And they've got a new quarterback and just on and on for the rest of time. So I'm going to say, yeah, probably not. Um, (laughs) 
so here's a question for you, a kind of a what if. Kyle Shanahan said that if the 49ers, uh, or the reason the 49ers didn't draft Pat Mahomes was that they had a plan to sign Kirk Cousins. If San Francisco had signed Kirk Cousins, if he had not, uh, if they hadn't traded for Jimmy G and they waited for Kirk and they signed him, A, are they in the Super Bowl? B, who is the Vikings quarterback right now? A, I don't think they're in the Super Bowl because I have resigned myself to the opinion that I just don't think Kirk Cousins is a guy that can get you there. I just don't think he has the intangibles to be able to overcome when something goes wrong. And, you know, if if the four, if Kirk Cousins is in New Orleans in a 49ers uniform when they went in there and beat the Saints 48-46, does Kirk Cousins win that game? I don't think he does. And then you're talking about the Niners probably having to go on the road multiple times to yep. get to the Super Bowl. Yep. And I don't think this quarter I don't think Kirk Cousins can do that. So I gotta say no. And who the Vikings quarterback is? I love that question. I don't even know. I I wonder Is it Case? See, did, it, did they just have to stick with Case? Well, and see, Teddy? I, I wonder if they would have gone with the plan that you had suggested about Case Teddy bringing, draft someone. Yeah, bringing back Case, bringing back Teddy, and then maybe drafting a Lamar Jackson or something like that. Or just bringing back Case and Teddy both and just say, okay. You guys duke it out for Battle the job. It out, right. Yep. So. Hmm. There's so many options that I wrote about that summer. You know who I think it might have been? Do you have an answer for this, Jonathan? Uh, I don't think they're in the Super Bowl. I just, like Manny said, I don't think Kirk Cousins is the guy to get you there, no matter who his coach is going to be. The quarterback that I, I had a couple ideas, Teddy Bridgewater, is that the one scenario yeah. that he remains a Vikings quarterback? Mm-hmm. The other one, if Jimmy G isn't traded from New England, is that the summer they get rid of Tom Brady and he sees the team that they have in Minnesota? Tom Brady. Mm. He says Tom Brady. That's a great mm. answer. Because now, how, you have the team that just got to the NFC Championship game. So you have an classic Vikings. primed and ready for him. Yeah. Go after Tom Brady. That's a good answer. Uh, I was going to go Alex Smith because yeah, yeah, he sure. was on the trade market and yep. the Washington football squad traded a lot for him. But the equivalent would have been like a second rounder and Trey Wayne's, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would have done that at that time if sure. you didn't have Kirk out there and you had no other answer. And Alex Smith is the perfect Zimmer quarterback. I was just going to say Mike Zimmer perfect. would have loved Alex Smith. Guy refuses to ever turn the ball over. Very yep. conservative, but you know, won a lot of football games. Still under the category of can't get you over the top. But. And then occasionally Alex Smith would make a play that a lot of times we don't see Kirk Cousins do. He has he had a great arm to throw down the field, and mm-hmm. it was almost like in Kansas City when they drafted Mahomes, he's like, well, I'm not going to be playing here, so I'm going to throw down the field. And then he led the league in quarterback rating <laughs> the year before. He would have been a really good option. And then you're like low-key... Like never would generally think of it sort of option would be someone like Ryan Tannehill or Tyrod Taylor Mm -hmm. because they were both rumored to be out there. Or it could have been quarterback drafted X where they just would have played Keenum, probably gone eight, seven and one or something like that. Just picked a random standing. Uh, And and then, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) And then they would have said, oh, not good enough with Keenum. I guess we'll have to draft someone else. Um, So that's an interesting question to think about. Manny, I really appreciate your time. I enjoyed very much our Super Bowl hot routes and Super Bowl conversation. If you missed any of that from earlier and discussing Chris Dolman as well, who passed away at the age of 58 uh, after battling brain cancer. Uh, make sure you go to wherever you get your podcast and check that out. So we'll take a break. We'll come back. We've got Sam Monson first at 3 o'clock and then Steve Palazzolo at 3.30, I think. And it might be the opposite way. So if it is, don't be surprised.
And we'll be right back here on Purple Daily. TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. It's Purple Daily. Yeah, we want to do it. We want to go out there. We want to play our best football. We know we're playing a great opponent, but we're going to try to win the game. And, uh, well, I mean, get one for Coach Reed, get one for Kansas City, and then get one for everybody. Uh, you know, you always have it in the back of your mind. And it's, uh, yeah, I was just thinking about it the other day. It's pretty crazy. About a year ago, I was learning to run again. And so it's just how things change in a year and, you know, what, it could, what could happen. It's just uh, this year's been a whirlwind. It's been a great time, though. I just had a great time with this team. Ah, uh, yes, the big game, as we are so often forced to call it in radio, if it's sponsored. But it's not, so it's the Super Bowl. And uh, we welcome in, in Miami now, from Pro Football Focus, the senior analyst at PFF, Steve Palazzolo. What is going on, Steve? How's Miami? Yo, Steve, do we got you there, buddy? Sorry, I was on mute. Yes. Are we allowed to call it the Super Bowl? We're good? Yeah, no, we're good. We don't have enough sponsors around here to not be able to call it the Super Bowl. So go ahead. <laughs> Perfect. It's, it's great down here. They actually started to feed the media down here. That was a big, big point of contention. Miami's starting to come around, though, as a Super Bowl site. Okay, very good, very good. It shouldn't be their first try. Like, I saw that there's an, there's an issue with San Francisco and where they were going to practice. Like, you guys didn't have this all figured out beforehand, huh? Yeah, like, this, you know, multiple years of planning that goes into this. And, you know, in Miami, the media is not fed for a couple of days. You know, that, that that never goes over well. <laughs> no, not so great. Well, we're glad that you have some food now and we can really dive into this. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to put on hold just a second the the uh, Super Bowl conversation because you guys at PFF released the uh, quarterback annual which is one of those things that I'm refreshing Twitter every day toward the end of the season looking for because it offers a lot of great content for me to write about because there are so many stats that you guys have and it was fascinating to me Steve to see the gains that Kirk Cousins made in so many areas in the detailed numbers but also the fact that it was still the Kirk coaster of the grades game by game look exactly like a roller coaster, which is how they've looked for his entire career. So with Kirk Cousins specifically, was there something to you that in his detailed stats that you guys put out really stuck out? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it was kind of like the flow of those games, right? I mean, you you get ebbs and flows in his career um, or points in his season throughout his career, but those first couple weeks were just terrible and you know, I thought even like week four against the Bears, I believe it was, where he just, I remember joking that he escaped with a 90 passer rating despite fumbling and, you know, just not really looking all that good. But he did go on a pretty consistent run after that. So I thought that the accuracy um, was solid for Cousins. I thought he did a nice job, um, you know, playing well for the majority of the season for whatever that's worth, rather than having uh, more ebbs and flows. It was that like week five and on. I mean, there was a lot of really good consistent play and, you know, this was the first year, uh, it was his highest graded year for us. So I mm-hmm. thought that was, that was really good to see as well. Cause he had normally been the guy where we'd say, yeah, you know, the stats are a little empty, you know, they're not really, um, the truth. And I thought this year was one of the first years where he kind of 
you know, played up to some of those numbers that he put up. So the uh, little mini headline I had in my article breaking down some of the numbers was that his strengths got stronger. Like, it, it seemed to me, Steve, like they put him in more positions to succeed this year than he had been since maybe 2016 when he was working with Sean McVay. And Mike Zimmer made it very clear at the end of the year he wanted the Kubiak offense to stay, and so they just hired Gary Kubiak to be the offensive coordinator. I think that they found the perfect mix with Kirk Cousins' skills, pocket quarterback, but can throw outside the pocket when you bootleg him out, throwing the ball 20 yards plus down the field. He has great ratings and and grades when throwing down the field. But there is also this part, Steve, where I hesitate and say, doesn't Kubiak do this for everyone? So, I mean, how much is it? Can we separate, using the numbers, Kirk's talent and what is hard to replace versus what is scheme with Gary Kubiak that you can replace? Yeah, it's great. It's a great question because I did, I did some writing on this from a Shanahan lens this week and just kind of going through the history and um, all the times Kyle Shanahan has been a play caller. Of course, his scheme, you know, very similar or if not identical to the Kubiak scheme. It's all the same tree and and there's just this consistent history of Shanahan's and Kubiak's you know just making quarterbacks play better essentially essentially getting production out of mid-tier quarterbacks I would say and then when they did get a high-end quarterback Kyle got Matt Ryan in 2016 you know they break the league with with MVP caliber numbers so there's certainly something to this history of their play action heavy scheme and all the things that they do to just create quarterback production I think the best way to always Way that though is with the PFF grade versus whatever you know statistical output you want to compare it to, whether it's adjusted net yards per attempt or mm-hmm. just yeah. yards per attempt or passer rating, whatever it might might be. And Cousins coming into the year had you know four years top ten in passer rating, and only one of those he was a top ten PFF uh, graded quarterback. And that always said, yeah, there's some inflation there. There's some help. There's some Sean McVay's. There's some Deshaun Jacksons helping. I thought this year was a really nice year to kind of mesh both and it's nice to see him in that you know familiar system with the Kubiak who has that consistent success and the ultimate goal no matter what you think of Kirk Cousins or not is to get that passing production right Right. at the end of the day is to create a productive pass game and I think they have the elements to do that so how do you guys figure out and project what he'll do in 2020 it's the same system so you can assume a lot of the same things will work and they'll probably add to it because it's easier to add to a system that everybody knows the terminology and everything else but there's also uh, our old friends in baseball would love to talk about regression and when someone has a career year in quarterback rating and pff grade and everything else if they go from being generally the 14th best quarterback in the league to the fifth for a year can you really count on them to continue that production next season when Potentially, you know, things change, maybe injuries or maybe schedule difficulty and things like that. No, that's a fair question, too. I mean, I think you have, the, the thing that we have to isolate from just the overall PFF grade is where did it come from and, and focus on the things that are more stable year to year. And it is, you know, the non-play action stuff. It's the standard the standard uh, dropbacks, so not those rollouts. Um, and Cousins did fare well in a lot of those key areas that, uh, you know, will – you know, essentially remain stable from year to year. So that part I think is good. And I think a lot of it just hinges upon uh, the playmaking situation. Do they, um, do they try to, uh, you know, have a better wide receiver three situation, right? Do they try um, to just upgrade all of the situation around him? I think that is the way to kind of mitigate regression is by getting more playmakers and attacking the field with more playmakers. So even if cousins doesn't play as well, 
next year, if you can make the situation around him even better, then there's a chance you can get to that same production level, which was really good this year. It, it was, Steve, but, but something that comes to mind with me with Kirk Cousins all the time, and I'm looking through these numbers and saying, wow, with some of these stats, uh, they probably should have won a little more. And, and I, I wonder how much... <laughs> I wonder how much value you think the Vikings lose with the fact that Kirk Cousins can't move. He can't escape. He can't make extra plays off schedule. He doesn't throw it downfield into coverage and get those pass interference penalties that Aaron Rodgers is famous for. I mean, how much value do they lose with the fact that he doesn't have that like baller mentality? Uh, there's definitely something to it. And, you know, I, there, are, there are elements to Cousins' game that have always kind of brought that up. I think, you know, we were just talking – um, a few of us talking about just some of the boneheaded plays that he's made. We were just talking about this the other day. Um, randomly under pressure, you know, panics, throws a backwards lateral against the Jets in 2018. Of yes. course, the famous, you know, I, I pressed the wrong Madden button and I spiked it in, or <laughs> kneeled instead of spiking, right? I mean, it was yes. just, those kind of instinctual plays aren't there. You know, the complete opposite of that stud quarterback playing this weekend and Patrick Mahomes. So I think that's always a concern, right? It's always going to be a concern if the game flow's not there. Um, and e- even though Cousins made a few nice comebacks this year and all that stuff, it's still not a position you really want to be in with him. So I, I think ultimately he's like a lot of other quarterbacks in that middle tier of quarterbacks. We create this ecosystem around him, try to extract that production, but I'm never going to have this clean answer that, like, hey, just go give it to Kirk. He'll go win the game for you. But that's him and, like, 15 other quarterbacks around the league. So I think it's just knowing what you're getting into in that respect. You know, 2018 had a lot more of those than 2019. And my favorite was a play that went down as, I think, a run. He panicked and turned around and threw it overhand to Latavius Murray, who was like four feet from him. And it, and it was one that, you know, it would it would never go down as a butt fumble or something because it wasn't a turnover. But Murray is somehow paying attention enough to grab it. If he doesn't grab it, the ball just goes 20 yards backwards and rolls around. It would have been one of the most like mind-blowing, hilarious bloopers ever if Latavius Murray is not somehow ready for that. So you're totally right with those. You never know when there's going to be that, that brain freeze there. Or, as you said, the controller comes unplugged or your little brother grabs it and starts mashing <laughs> buttons that does seem to happen to him um with jimmy garoppolo we i think here in minnesota look at garoppolo and jared goff as being like yeah those guys are kirk like because their production is bolstered by the coordinator that they have or the head coach the person calling the plays um how similar or different is jimmy garoppolo from kirk cousins Oh, I think there are a lot of similarities there. I, look, then I, so here's the thing, right? We're supposed to be at PFF, number-driven, and we grade every single player on every play and all that stuff. And then I think you get into that situation where, and again, I was just having this conversation recently, too, about just QB wins, which I'm, you know, I'll get fired if I mention that as a stat, right? <laughs> I'm not allowed to discuss that. But I think the same way analytics folks look at, like, draft position in the draft, and they say, if you're drafted number one, there's probably a whole lot of you know, other teams that like you, and there's all these other things that kind of roll into, hey, you're the number one draft pick, therefore you're probably more likely to be good. And they use that kind of as a variable. I think QB wins is kind of a variable in this whole thing where over time, if you know, if Kirk Cousins doesn't beat a whole lot of um, you know, winning teams or his team doesn't win a whole lot of uh, against a whole lot of winning teams, maybe there's something to it. I think that would be like the one place where you separate a Garoppolo and a Cousins. Say what you want about the throw-for-throw production, how it's come about, the system, and all that stuff. Garoppolo has won, even with a bad 2017 
49ers team that had what one or two wins or whatever when he took over and then he, you know they went undefeated there's something to um you know him finding a way to win and cousins maybe not so if there is a separator it's not the separator that is maybe analytically sound but i think there might be a little bit of signal in that whole thing that maybe separates Garoppolo over Cousins. Well, you know what I like quarterback win-loss record is as a starting point to try and figure out why it is what it is. So when we look at Kirk Cousins, the only reason we're here is for teams to win, right? We're not here for them to right. score 85 PFF grades. We're here for wins and losses. Of so course. if you look at Kirk Cousins as a 500 quarterback for a large part of his career, you have to say, all right, was it the defense or was it the fact that he wouldn't throw into coverage or was it the fact that he had, I don't know what it was for EPA, but they lost like 20 points because he was just bad at running or whatever, you know, like what, what is it about his game that can explain this? And with Jimmy Garoppolo, I think it's just the fact that when push comes to shove, the guy will make the throw that he'll, he's got a quick release. And if he's got people coming down on him, he will make that throw into coverage that you need, or he'll spot that guy down the field and make that throw. So even if he's, not perfect throughout an entire game sometimes you don't have to be it's just they need a big play from you and that's my like with Eli Manning I know that we all fought with each other for 60 days straight or whatever about whether he's a Hall of Famer I don't so much care about that but when he was at his best he would just throw it like double coverage you're not supposed to make that throw but whatever he'll take that shot and a lot of times for quarterback Steve I think that that pays off yeah he, as you were explaining that and before you mentioned Eli I was thinking Eli. I was thinking mm-hmm. here's Eli who landed exactly at 500 and did it a completely way, different way from Kirk Cousins. Maybe stuff early in the game didn't go great, and the Giants are more likely to lose, but Eli is going to go down with a fight. And so right. he led a ton of fourth-quarter comebacks. He did that. Um, the other QB win thing, because I always need to try to praise Tom Brady. He needs more praise, you know, from people. But <laughs> QB win, of course, he's got the best win-loss record, all that stuff, but he has it in every situation when he throws the ball 40 times when he throws the ball 50 times which was by design and game plan because he is that good in fourth quarter comebacks he has the best record in every situation when his defense gives up 30 points 20 points whatever it might be so I think Brady has been able to show that he can adjust to the situation he could be a game manager he can chuck it down the field he can do whatever it takes um, to find a way to win so that's where I think you find you know, some information in the win-loss record to go with all the other numbers. And just to get us in even more analytical trouble, uh, if you go oh, through, no. if you go through your PFF grades and look at the top quarterbacks, like how many are just losing all the time? Like the the guys who were really really good throughout a season, even Case Keenum, who's not a good quarterback, but for that season he's a top ten by PFF for 2017. And he won a lot of games. So naturally, if you are up there in in the the way that you're playing as a quarterback, your team is probably winning. So if you have the most connection to winning as a quarterback, I think it's fair to look at what you did and whether your team won. And if you just threw all of the quarterbacks ever into the bins of 500 quarterback, 650 winning percentage quarterback, 350 winning percentage, how many would come out very similar to how you guys grade them? I think a lot. Oh, yeah, I think especially over time. I mean, even passer rating, a flawed stat, I think over time is getting you in the ballpark, right? So flawed stats, are, once, you, once you increase the sample size, um, it'll, it'll put everybody kind of where they belong. So, um, you know, the fact that Kirk Cousins can't win a game on Monday night, like that's not the story <laughs> no. necessarily. That's, that's eight games, you know, in isolation essentially. But the general concept that over time there is this trend of, say a Stafford or a Cousins, ah, you know, they can't overcome, they can't get over the hump. 
you know, maybe there is something to that over time. Well, I will not reveal to any of your data scientists at PFF that uh, we had this discussion. Um, j- just uh, <laughs> before I let you go, Steve, because I-, I love having these conversations with you. Um, Kansas City, Pat Mahomes. Um, I-, I was thinking about this. How many Super Bowls will Patrick Mahomes go to? Like, like Dan Marino was talking this morning about how after he went to one, he felt, you know, everyone thought he'll just go back year after year after year. And with Mahomes, it's sort of that same revolutionary quarterback that we feel like will be in it all the time, but there's no real way to know that. So I, I wonder what you guys think about how sustainable this will be and how often he'll be in this big game. It, it feels like he's going to be there a lot. Yep. And, you know, they're, they were in overtime in the AFC Championship last year. Of course, they make it this year. I do think that the AFC, though, is lined up to be really competitive uh, with Lamar, obviously, with Deshaun Jackson and uh, with a Baker Mayfield in Cleveland. I mean, just a lot of the quarterback situations there I think are going to make it competitive. So even if Mahomes is great, you know, it's going to be a tough road all the, all the time. But I do expect a lot, and I'm sure – People were saying that back in 84 with Marino. He'll be back. You know, he'll mm-hmm, be back. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it didn't always work out that way. A couple of AFC championship losses and all that fun stuff. But I think if you have Mahomes and Reed matched together for the next X amount of years, I think you'll see them back in the Super Bowl quite a few times. Well, Steve, this was awesome. Uh, the PFF NFL show is your podcast, which is great with you and Sam Monson, who's going to come up in like 10 minutes also. So we have a, a real awesome. PFF day here. And uh, I also wanted to give you my condolences for not getting the Houston Texans GM job. I know you were hanging out for that. Oh, Sorry. Yeah, I did want it. I did want it, even though they don't have the draft picks. Or but the, uh, I'm sure Bill O'Brien will do a great job. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure you are. Uh, okay, Steve, great stuff. Follow him on Twitter, PFF Steve Palazzolo. And uh, we'll catch up with you again soon, man. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. For sure. That's uh, Steve Palazzolo, one of my favorite guys. The PFF NFL show is great, um, and the PFF annual is super fun. And I looked through all the stats last night, and, I mean, literally there's like a 100 different statistical categories that, since you don't want to pour through them, I did for you and uh, got all the takeaways. And it really is something with Kirk Cousins that every stat, almost to a T, he was great in 2019. Not just pretty good, but one of the best. I mean, whether you're talking about his accuracy or how he was even on third downs, a big, big difference on third downs from last year to this year, he went from 22nd, I'll find it, 22nd or 23rd in 2018 on third down to the seventh highest graded quarterback on third down, which you would think if you put up numbers like this, where you're the fifth highest graded quarterback and you're seventh best on third down, so it's not even just empty stats or you're playing from behind and completing a lot of easy passes, that they would have just won some of those big games. And then when you look at his game to game, it's just a roller coaster. And it's the only way you could describe it is it goes up, it goes way down. His week two game out of a hundred on the PFF scale was a 25. And he had games of 93, 92. Those were the ones where they were playing all the bad teams, the Lions and, and Philadelphia and the Giants and just lighting them up in that month of October. But then after that, Opponents started to slow him down a little bit, and he had a few more poor games, and it culminated with the final game of the year, which was one of his worst, his second worst, against Green Bay again at the end of the season. And it's such a conundrum when you think about signing Cousins 
to a contract extension. I got an email from a listener yesterday who was just going in on Cousins. You know, he can't win the big games. He won't run, and you're just going to lose with him. And signing him to extension is a death knell for the franchise and all these things. And, you know, I want to come back and be like, gosh, but look at these numbers. They're not super easy to replace somebody who has this great of accuracy. Cousins was an elitely accurate passer, one of the best in the NFL, fourth in accuracy percentage. 63% of his passes were with like perfect accuracy by PFF and, and the way that they track things. And they have a former NFL quarterback who does all the tracking. So it's not, it's not just Steve or somebody off the street, because that's always a question I get is, well, who's actually doing it? Well, it's a former NFL quarterback who's going through it and uh, is doing all the tracking on this stuff. And so 63% of his passes are perfectly accurate, fourth best in the league. That is hard to replace. One of the best deep passers in the NFL, 132 quarterback rating on go routes, 119 quarterback rating when throwing it more than 20 yards. And yet, Vikings fans still feel very empty about his season, and I don't blame you at all. And on the regression point, when you go back and look at Jimmy Garoppolo, and here would be the difference, Jimmy Garoppolo and Kirk Cousins, if you're looking at this year. Because Jimmy is rated still in the ballpark of Kirk. Kirk is a little bit higher by a lot of the PFF numbers. But when you go through it, and he beat Green Bay, and put up 253 yards, two touchdowns, no picks, in Week 12, demolished Green Bay, played great. When he put up 349 yards, four touchdowns, against the New Orleans Saints in New Orleans... And then even against Seattle in the last game of the year, Jimmy Garoppolo comes out and goes 18 for 22 with 285 yards, and they win that game. And against the Rams, he threw two picks, but he also came up with the game-winning pass, a a deep bomb that set them up to win 34-31. So when he played against good teams, he was very often not intimidated. When he played against good defenses, he found ways to still have very good games. And that's something that we just did not see a whole lot from Cousins. And I think it's a great point from Steve is, well, at at how many of those games against winning teams, against good defenses, at what point would we say, yeah, that's going to be the problem every year with Kirk Cousins as your quarterback? So everything is sort of tying into, do you sign Cousins to a contract extension? I think if we were gambling on it right now, that the Vikings front office would look at all these other numbers and say, we just need a few other pieces in a few other places for him to be Jimmy Garoppolo. But I'm not sure just because neither one of them runs that it's, and both of them have great coaches and great systems and a similar system. I don't think just because of that, that you can look at it and say, Oh no, they're kind of the exact same quarterback. And Jared Goff, in the same way, they're not really the exact same quarterback. They just have that particular similarity. I think Goff is actually closer to Garoppolo, or I'm sorry, to Cousins than Garoppolo is to Cousins, if that makes sense. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll have more PFF conversation, this time with Steve Palazzolo's podcast partner, Sam Monson, and just the Really appreciate PFF setting us up with all their people from Miami. I know they're down there, that they're doing the Radio Row thing and everything else. But throughout the season, we've just had a great relationship with them, getting on weekly guests and stuff. So they were extremely generous. So we will discuss more uh, Kirk Cousins quarterback annuals, Super Bowl, and on and on and on with Sam Monson. When we return, you'll listen to Purple Daily here on Score North. Usually, John, 
that we're doing, doing something called the Score North Download right now, but he is calling Sam Monson on the phone. So, are you connected with Sam Monson? There we go. He's ready. Okay, good job, Jonathan. You got anything to say? Is there something you're going to bring to the audience? I've got a read to do. Destination Winter St. Paul, <laughs> featuring the Wells Fargo Winter Skate and the Securing Financial Super Slide, is open now through February 22nd over at CHS Field in St. Paul. The Wells Fargo Winter Skate opens daily at 11 a.m. and the Securing Financial Super Slide is open Thursday through Sunday. For more information, visit scorenorth.com keyword winter. All right. No content at all. No, like, that all, that no all toy, no sports update, no, like, hey, did you hear about this? What, what were you going to say? Uh, mine was about... Chris Dolman again. We've been talking all day at various points here on Score North of the passing of former Minnesota Viking defensive lineman Chris Dolman. Dolman in 10 seasons as a Viking notch. 96 and a half sacks for the Vikings and finishing with a career total of 155 and a half, which puts him at fifth all time. He passed away last night after a battle with cancer at the age of 58. You know, that was really sad and now I wish I hadn't asked. Wish I had just moved forward with that. Chris Dolman, uh, RIP, one of the great pass rushers in history. Thank you, Jonathan. And uh, Jonathan, multi-talented, doing that along with getting our friend Sam Monson on the air here. Well, Sam, we just talked to Steve, and Steve said that he should have been named the general manager of the Texans and not Bill O'Brien. Would you agree? Uh, I think Steve has been campaigning to be general manager of any job that's out there. And to be fair... Bill O'Brien masterfully made that job to the point where nobody other than Bill O'Brien would want it. <laughs> yes. um, but apparently that also extends to Steve. So Bill O'Brien and Steve were the only two people that would actually want the Houston Texans GM job, given that Bill O'Brien has all the power and they don't have any draft picks. See, I'm always saying that tanking works. And if you tank your own GM situation, then you get to be the GM. So even in this spot, tanking worked. Beautifully done by Bill O'Brien. Sam, uh, well, the QB annual is out, and I have lots of questions. um, But I want to talk about, I know, I want to talk about Patrick Mahomes a little bit. Because when Mahomes was coming out, there were these things about, well, you know, he doesn't have, like, the footwork and stuff like that, and he hasn't played in an NFL system, and he's the best quarterback in the NFL. And no surprise, the best quarterback in the NFL is in the Super Bowl. And I guess my question is, will evaluators look at things differently with guys who have so much success, like Patrick Mahomes did, I mean, is is that going to change? Is there something with Mahomes being in the Super Bowl that evaluators for teams will learn from? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is say, okay, you know, collectively we probably missed on Patrick Mahomes, right? We almost everybody thought he was one of the top quarterback prospects and, you know, a first-round talent, but nobody thought he was going to be the MVP, the best quarterback in the NFL, a guy who's looking like he's on his way to redefining just how good the position can be played. So what do we miss? Um, And you look back and you say, okay, when you look at his scouting reports, it was this guy does incredible things outside of structure. Obviously, he's incredibly productive, but so is pretty much anybody that plays in that kind of offense. So he does these incredible things outside of structure. He makes these big plays. There's some huge talent there. But almost everything he's doing is outside of structure of the offense. Can he play within the confines of, a, of an NFL system, down to down? Can he do the sort of fundamental, normal things that you need to be able to do in order to, to sort of earn the right to do the crazy ad-lib stuff? And, you know, ultimately it was, a, it was an unknown. It's not that we were saying he couldn't do that or that anybody, I think, was saying he couldn't do that. 
it was that we didn't know because he didn't do enough of it. He didn't have to at the college level. Um, so I, I think ultimately we're going to end up saying that I don't know that even with the benefit of hindsight, if we could have predicted Patrick Mahomes. Now, obviously, you can look at the production, you can look at the upside and say, in theory, the ceiling was here. But if you apply that standard, you know, you can, you can say the same thing for a lot of top talented quarterbacks that never end up becoming Patrick Mahomes. And that's the danger with that. So we were talking a little bit earlier about this, Sam, about the situation that Patrick Mahomes got put into. And I really like when quarterbacks sit for a year. I do the show a couple times a week with Sage Rosenfels, and sometimes when he starts talking about how complicated things are, like protections and reading defenses and stuff, like, okay, all right, just take a break. I need, I need a breather. I need to be like the, the SpongeBob meme where he just like, let me, let me lean on something and take a break real quick. There's just such a huge gap of difference between college and the NFL that it has to help for guys to be able to sit for a year. That has to have helped Patrick Mahomes. And then Andy Reid is his coach, who has gotten the most out of every quarterback that he's ever had. And I saw that he throws to an extremely high percentage of open receivers, as well as the um, unbelievable plays that he's able to make because of his raw talent. Uh, how much do we look at this and say, he just fell into a really rare situation? This wasn't like Joe Burrow joining the Bengals. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge part of it as well. And, of course, Alex Smith was there. You know, you end up with a quarterback like Alex Smith who, A, has a career year himself and therefore can sort of buy you the entire season to sit on the bench. B, from all, by all accounts, you know, completely opened himself up as a book to Patrick Mahomes and said, look, I'm, I'm here to help you. Anything you need, I'll show you how it's done. I'll tell you what you need to know. Uh, I, I think all of the things surrounding where he ended up had to have helped the, the sitting for that period of time. Andy Reid, the scheme once he got into the offense, uh, the receivers that they were building while he was doing that, and the sort of the leadership and the mentorship and the the help that Alex Smith gave him um, year one as well. Yeah, I think ultimately Mahomes fell into the perfect situation. Now again, a lot of quarterbacks have fallen into a perfect situation. They haven't ended up coming good. So there's there's more to it than that. But that definitely has to be a factor. So when he goes up against the San Francisco defense, how can we predict how the San Francisco defense is going to play? Like they gave up 46 to the New Orleans Saints. And I listen a lot to you guys' podcasts, and I noticed George Shahuri, who was on the other day, is always saying defense doesn't matter. And then, you know, there's some sort of conversation about whether it's just not mattering or it's predictable or what we can do with it in the playoffs here. Mahomes kind of changes the dynamic of trying to predict this, doesn't he? When it was Jared Goff, I don't think any of us were super stunned that a guy who has to be so limited in the things that he can do because of just his raw talent was slowed down by Bill Belichick. But with this, it's like, can't he just overcome anything San Francisco is able to do to him because he could just make plays out of structure? Yeah, I mean, right now, Mahomes is in this area of quarterbacks that not many get to and... I haven't seen one, you know, since Aaron Rodgers at the peak of his powers, where I don't even know what the game plan should be. You know, most quarterbacks, you at least know how you should be attacking them. Now, whether they can overcome that or you can execute it and they'll just beat you anyway, that's another matter. But you at least know what the plan should be to stop them. Um, but Rodgers, when he was at his best, and Mahomes now, there isn't a game plan. They can beat you with everything. They can beat you no matter what you try and do against them. And there's no good answer. You know, if you try and sell out to pressure him because pressure ultimately affects all quarterbacks, 
he escapes the pocket, he makes something crazy happen downfield, and you just gave up a 70-yard touchdown in a heartbeat. So then you try and go, okay, let's keep him in the pocket at all costs uh, where he can't do as much damage. But he can. He just picks you apart like a conventional, you know, statuesque pocket passer. He can do that if, you, if that's what you want to do to him. There is just no answer for Patrick Mahomes right now. And the truly terrifying thing for San Francisco is I think there's more to come. If you look at the run he's had in the postseason so far, it's been largely built off the fact that he hasn't made mistakes. Mm-hmm. He basically hasn't had negatively graded throws. If you look at the drives where they've stalled, it's been drops. Mahomes has hit guys, right. and they haven't caught the ball. He basically hasn't been stopped. But he hasn't actually made a lot of the big-time throws that we know him for, the crazy deep-down-the-field stuff. So imagine if he, if he continues to not make mistakes and starts doing that. Like That's a whole different level or, uh, as well, and he's already the best quarterback we've ever graded in the postseason. He is, really. All, like He's the best ever in the postseason for you guys? This is... This is the best postseason grade we've ever given a wow. quarterback, obviously, with the one game to go. Wow. Well, I guess when you come back from down 24 points. But that's the crazy thing that you're bringing up. is like Even when he was down 24, it was like they scored too fast and he's got a chance. I wasn't leaving that game with him down 24 because he just breaks the game in ways that very few quarterbacks ever have. Uh, Pro Football Focus's lead NFL analyst, Sam Monson, with us, uh, does the PFF NFL show with Steve Palazzolo, who we talked to earlier. If you missed that, catch that on uh, anywhere you get your podcasts on our feed. So, um, well, Sam, I want to ask you about Jimmy Garoppolo because Steve and I talked about it a lot and I love Jimmy Garoppolo takes I I love like a lot of different perspectives on whether he's great or a system quarterback or a game managing quarterback a product of Kyle Shanahan or not and I I, want to know where you stand on that because his PFF numbers are good but they don't make you go oh this guy is definitely going 21 and 5 as a starter but he also played really well against a lot of really good teams this year he did. He's a strange quarterback. I think inconsistency is his biggest thing because he can be a great quarterback. He can also be a bad quarterback, and then he can be somewhere in the middle. He's a strange quarterback because he has a lot of the hallmarks of a sort of game manager, you know, an Alex Smith type of quarterback, that style of, of guy. But the difference between him and those guys is he makes a lot more mistakes. Um, he turns the ball over. He puts it in harm's way a lot more than those typical game-managing quarterbacks. That's, that's one of the tenets of that style of QB. You, you don't take risks with the football. But he does. Um, but he counteracts it by being accurate and by, you know, it's, it's been very difficult for anybody to prove or to sort of show um, statistically the existence of any kind of clutch ability in mm-hmm. football. It, yeah. it doesn't seem to show up anywhere. But if you were devising, you know, a, a subset to look at to define clutch, you know, fourth quarter performance, uh, performance while trailing, you know, in, in a, uh, adversarial situations, um, just rough spots and, and all those kinds of things, Garoppolo's clutch numbers are insane. Like he does seem to be able to pick it up when he needs to, and even things like, you know, every his numbers after he throws an interception are ridiculous. Every time. He's put in an ugly spot. He does seem to be able to find the answer. Um, and there does, you know, I think that's kind of being reflected in the fact that he's winning all these games. Yeah, I like to look also at how a quarterback does on third and long. Like, I know it's a very small sample size, but Jimmy Garoppolo on third and longs is absolutely fantastic this year. He's averaging. 
uh, over eight yards an attempt. He's got a hundred plus quarterback rating on third and long. It's it's something that I think separates the the quarterbacks who win a lot and sometimes the quarterbacks who don't. Where someone like Cousins was better this year, but Case Keenum in 2017, where if it got to it got a little bit hairy and he had to make an actual throw, he's not generally the guy to do it. Um, but Jimmy Garoppolo seems to be able to. Uh, here's a question for you, Sam. So both of these guys have these great situations. They have awesome head coaches who are great play callers and they elevate their quarterbacks. If it's the final drive of the Super Bowl, which coach would you rather have calling the plays, Andy Reid or Kyle Shanahan? If you got the ball at the 25 and you have to you're down by 4, so you got to score a touchdown, who's calling your plays? I think just because Andy Reid's offense is, is better suited for that kind of chase the game mentality. But I think these are the two best offensive minds in the game right now. I think these are two spectacular coaches. The only concern I have with either of them is not if they're, they're calling a drive to, to come from behind and win a game. It's what happens if either one of them gets up with a few minutes to go and is faced with the situation of, do I go conservative to try and chew the clock and seal this win? Or do I keep my foot on the gas and try and keep doing the thing that got me in this position in the first place? My concern is that both of these coaches would go too conservative faced with that mm-hmm. situation. And that is like really the only concern with either of them. Well, I thought that you just ran to win, though, Sam. So if they just run the ball, they should be fine. Yeah. <laughs> It's been great. It really has been great to see. It's like, well, San Francisco is this running team. You're like, did you Google their stats for passing? Uh, second best yards per attempt and, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. But it's just sort of funny. Like, whatever just happened is the thing that's the truth in football. And that's why PFF is popular because that's not how you guys do it. Um, before I let you go, Sam, I want to get your reaction to some of the numbers with Kirk Cousins and what they say about potentially signing him to a contract extension the numbers in the pff annual i gotta say are i mean remarkable from your guys work and what you're able to put together for numbers but also for cousins his big picture overall this season numbers went way up in many key areas under kevin stefanski and gary kubiak kubiak is coming back and i just wonder what that might mean to the vikings signing cousins long term and what his numbers in your mind say about whether they should make him their long-term quarterback yeah, I mean, this, this season was kind of, um, I think, a vindication of the deal to sign him in the first place because once you started to put some of the structure around him, he immediately looked like a much better player. And it's not to say that Cousins suddenly became a superstar or a flawless quarterback. He still has the same flaws. It's just the situation around him improved in terms of play calling and offensive structure and scheme. And these are all things you need in place if you're going to win a Super Bowl with Kirk Cousins. And I think everyone knows that, you know, that he was brought in as the final piece of the puzzle into that, to the 2017 roster. Now there's more pieces of the puzzle because you've lost a bunch more of them along the way, but cousins is still, I think, a piece of that puzzle. It's just that, um, you know, you need to, to rebuild the thing around him in order for that to be successful, or you've got to find a guy that provides, you know, more of the answers on, a, on his own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's right. And that's the thing I wonder about is can they build the strong enough roster with the price around a quarterback who can't just put it on his shoulders? And I think that's a question that most of the contracts we've seen for similar quarterbacks, it usually gets answered with no, right? Like that's very, very hard to do. 
It is. And I think ultimately, you know, you should probably keep trying, but as long as you have one of those guys who is making life difficult in terms of assembling a roster because of how much resources are tied up to them, and they're not a superstar, they're not a guarantee, they're not a, you know, Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson style of QB, keep searching for a rookie, you know, keep drafting quarterbacks that might make that decision easier for you. Because if you hit on a guy in the second round, in the third round, if you find a Russell Wilson, suddenly everything becomes easier because you then have the luxury of moving on from the guy who you could win with, but it was going to be hard work because of all the money tied up in him. Now you can invest in the young quarterback and have all that resource to attack everything else with. Right. And the young quarterback could also blow up in your face and be terrible and ruin your organization. But other than that, <laughs> it's a fun game we play. Well, that's, why, that's why it's fun to talk it, about. You do it in the mid rounds. You do it in the mid rounds. Right. You know, you right. keep a guy like Cousins on because you, you, he's your plan A, right? You keep plan A in place. You try and build around him and keep taking long shot shots in the mid rounds because sometimes those quarterbacks pan out. And when they do, there's nothing more valuable in the NFL. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Well, Sam, I really appreciate you taking the time while you guys are in Miami, but also just throughout this season, you came on every couple of weeks and your appearances, uh, as I'm sure you know, are always must listen. So uh, appreciate all of your time this season, man, and enjoy the Super Bowl. Thank you, sir. Anytime. Take it easy. Yeah, for sure. Follow Sam on Twitter at PFF underscore Sam. Listen to the PFF NFL show, one of my favorite podcasts. It's great. So make sure you listen. Um, and the QB annual is just mind-blowingly detailed. And if you don't want to subscribe to PFF to get it, then you can see a lot of my breakdown on Kirk Cousins stats at scorenorth.com, which is a free website. Um, okay, so just a few minutes left here of Purple Daily today. This has been a fun show. I really love diving into these topics with the PFF guys because they just put so much work into it. It's all they ever do all year long. And uh, I got to meet Chris Collinsworth when I went down there, so I have to like be nice to them. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, well, I'm not kidding about meeting Chris Collinsworth. I did, but... Um, I don't have to be nice to them. They're just great to, to us. So real quick, though, uh, you found a story, Jonathan, that NFL.com wrote about mm-hmm. the one key thing every team can do to get to next year's Super Bowl, which <laughs> I didn't look at what it said for Jacksonville or the Jets. I'll look it up for you here. Quick. Okay. Because that's hilarious. Like, yeah, I mean, it's a great story idea, and it's already off-season mode for a lot of the writers, basically, because Mm -hmm. you just have one more game and that's it. But one thing they can do to get to the Super Bowl for the Jets, I think you probably might need a longer list. I'm just throwing it out there. But the... Uh, their their list, uh, what they pick for the Vikings, is exactly what I would pick for the Vikings. And is the hardest thing for the Vikings to decide how they're going to allocate their resources. Aside from Delvin Cook and aside from Kirk Cousins, those decisions, I think, are really tough. We, You can ask a 100 different football writers and analysts and ex-players and coaches, would you sign Kirk Cousins to a contract extension? And you will get a 100 different answers of how long or would you do it or why you would or why you wouldn't do it. Um, so... That's why I love the conversation because so many people have different perspectives on whether Cousins is good enough, whether you could put enough around him. The running back stuff, I think more people lean toward you can replace running backs, but Delvin is so loved and so excellent when he's out there that, you know, that one's a little bit hard too. But in terms of deciding who they're going to pay in the secondary, 
and how they're going to make that a reasonably good secondary when it comes to shutting down the pass is a great question because yesterday, Courtney Cronin said that she thinks that they will re-sign Trey Wayans. I'm not sure how many people would sign up for that since he's been a very average corner. If you want to sign Anthony Harris, which everybody in the world does, you're going to have to pay out the nose to do it and then pay so much money for the safety position. that I, you know, You look at these teams and what they do really well who are in the Super Bowl, there's a couple of things in common that they have, and one of them is that they're usually pretty darn good at stopping the pass, and Kansas City's overall numbers are not like mind-blowing against the pass, but the second half of the season, they were really good, and Tyron Matthew stepped up and, and improved their defense, and they were able to shut down or at least play reasonably well uh, against a lot of very good opponents. And San Francisco is just downright excellent against the pass. They allowed only... yards per completion, which was number one in the entire NFL. They only gave up 169 yards per game passing. Just crazy. What? Uh, Yeah, I know. That's that's absolutely crazy. Um, And actually, I overlooked this. So Kansas City is fifth in quarterback rating against. San Francisco is seventh. These teams are great passing the ball with their quarterbacks, and they're great at shutting down the pass on defense. And that's what you find with most teams. So the Vikings were a good passing offense and a good passing defense, but not great at either. Not, wow, you cannot stop this passing offense. They were 10th in quarterback rating against, which is good. Not quite as good as the teams in the Super Bowl. That's sort of the the Vikings theme. Real good, not quite as good as the teams in the Super Bowl. And when you look at something like, I like expected points added. It's a hard stat to explain, but just situation versus performance. Vikings are ninth in passing. Well, Kansas City's number one. San Francisco's number five. So once again, good, not perfectly great. I think in order to take a Kirk Cousins team and reach the Super Bowl, you have to be great at stopping the pass. Not just pretty good, not just okay. You have to be great on defense at stopping the opponent's quarterbacks or you're not going to have a chance. Because if you even if you think about their game against San Francisco and their game against New Orleans, like the biggest thing with New Orleans was they were able to slow down Drew Brees for the most part. And if you can stop Drew Brees and slow him down and get good performances out of your corners, which are more consistent than pressure, I think, from a game-to-game basis, sometimes you'll pressure, sometimes you won't. Sometimes Everson Griffin will get shut down. But usually a corner, game-to-game-to-game, if they're great, is pretty repeatable. And that's what Richard Sherman has been, and that's what Tyron Matthew has been. Game after game after game, they're great. They stop the top players on the other team. You can count on that. You can't count on a safety to do it when it's the case of the Minnesota Vikings if you're talking about paying Anthony Harris. But there also aren't too many corners in the league where you could just say, oh, we'll just throw money at this guy. When when a corner is great, they usually don't end up hitting the free agent market for a reason, because everyone knows how valuable they are. And then just my mind starts swirling about like, well, could you trade Dalvin Cook for a corner or something? Right. I end up in in a million different places. But if they're going to do it, if you told me next year the Vikings are in the Super Bowl, how do you think they got there? I would say Kirk played the same exact way he did this year. And instead of Xavier Rhodes giving up 130 quarterback rating and Trey Wayne's giving up whatever it was, over 100, they had two different corners who completely shut down opposing wide receivers. 
That would be the way that I think that they would get there. Is one of those corners on the roster currently, or are they both? Do you have to both I go out and get both of them? I just don't know what to think of Mike Hughes yet. It's too early with him. Yeah. Uh, these other corners, Waynes and especially Rhodes, it was year three where they turned the corner. Am I right, Jonathan? Uh, but it was really year three <laughs> where they became good at football. And Hughes had the injury and, and really just hasn't had a whole lot of playing time. So I don't know what to say yet about him. I can't say that he's not going to be really good. He doesn't strike me as a guy who's going to be unbelievable. Right. And you might need that. You might need your Tyron Matthew or your Richard Sherman to be super, super, super good uh, in order to actually get there. That's what I would say is they found somebody else. Holton Hill might have potential. I don't think he's got Darrell Revis potential. Is it a draft pick with the 25th selection? Or do they trade up and get... The guy from Ohio State is pretty freaking good. Uh, but, you know, I mean, what what do they do there at that position? That might determine whether they can go deep in the playoffs next year or even not even be a playoff team. If, if this cornerback position becomes some sort of merry-go-round and isn't good... It's going to be very, very hard to compete because I just don't think the offense is getting better than it was this year. All right. Well, I appreciate Steve Palazzolo and Sam Monson. Those guys do a really fun podcast, and it was awesome to have both of them on. And Manny Hill stepping in, talking Super Bowls. We know that he loves that more than anything. So um, appreciate them. If you missed any of the show, wherever you get your podcasts, just type in Purple Daily. Mackie and Judd Rami coming up next here on Score North. If you love to travel, you love cool experiences, you are going to love Viator. Viator is the world's leading travel experience marketplace. And for me, Sun Valley skiing is huge on my bucket list. So I just opened the Viator app, searched Sun Valley, and boom! Custom ski and boot fittings and tickets delivered right to our condo. Pretty unbelievable. Just download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking. One app, over 300,000 experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator.